screen, or turn on your electronic devices or whatever it is that you use. Anybody at the front still got their prayer survey that they want to hand in? If you've still got it and we haven't collected it, the box will be at the back. There's a box with 8.30. It'll be at the PA desk. Just simply throw it in there. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16 is the centre point of the Gospel of Matthew. Mark and Luke repeat it. They both, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, have this conversation because it's central to the issue of why Jesus came. And it's... Um, the explanation, like the launch pad for this series as well. It says, when Jesus came, verse 13, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, <clears throat> which is uh, north and Galilee territory, I think, for these people, Jesus has taken his disciples out of Israel on an expedition. He wants some alone time with them, and he's got some serious questions he wants to both ask them, but also examine them on. So he comes to this uh, place, Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, and some people even say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Who do people say I am? Jesus asked the question. I'm not sure that he was overly interested in what other people were saying who he was. I think that was more just the way that he was getting their minds to start to focus on his identity. And then comes the crucial question, who do you say I am? And that, of course, is our question for this series. Who is this man? Who does he claim to be? And at some point we will look at who did others say he was? Who did his enemies say he was? Who did the normal people say he was way back then? And then most importantly, who do you say he is? Because on that question hangs our whole eternal destiny. I was first exposed to the Lord Jesus when I was a kid. My mum and dad were not believers. I didn't grow up in a Christian household. We did not attend church. I went to Sunday school 1.5 times. Actually, it was 1.1 times. I went once with my sister when I was about four or five. I can't remember exactly. And she didn't want to go the next week, but I said that I did, and I left home by myself, four or five years of age, small country town, so it was safe back in those days, to walk from our place down to uh, the Anglican church. And I got scared, didn't want to go by myself. So I got to the main street, I sat on the footsteps of one of the shops there, and I waited for what I thought would be about an hour. Four or five year olds suck at telling the time. So after about five minutes, I walked home again. <laughs> and mum knew, you haven't been to Sunday school. So I never went back. So four or five. Then when I went oh, in uh, state schools, 
Uh, back in those days, I'm sure it would have been the same here in Queensland, our school teachers used to give us RE, religious instructions. The Department of Education actually had a book of Bible stories that the classroom teacher would read to you each week. There was a designated period of time. Then in high school, we had uh, the local ministers would come in and they would do RE of a sort. That was about it for me. The only other religious input I had into my life was when I went to high school in year seven, the Gideons came and they gave me my very first Bible, a Gideon's New Testament. And I was thrilled to get it and I went home and I would read it every night for about a month, three, four weeks, something like that. At the end of that period of time, something happened, which I'll tell you in a second. But I would start at the beginning. Where else do you start to read? Well, you know how the New Testament begins. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. It's really thrilling stuff. So I would read that. I'd get to the end of the chapter, and then I would pray a prayer. The only prayer that I knew was the Lord's Prayer. Been taught that at school. And we would actually pray it at school. I would pray that prayer, then I would go to sleep. The next night, I would open the New Testament again, and I would, I don't remember what I read. So I would start again. So I read Matthew chapter 1, and maybe a little bit into chapter 2, about 20 times. And it wasn't making any sense. Still doesn't, a lot of it. <laughs> but for me, it was like a good luck charm. I would take that New Testament with me to science on Fridays and science because on Fridays we had exams. And if I touched the New Testament, then I would do really well in my exams. And you may laugh, but it worked. <laughs> I would rub that New Testament, I'd go do my exam, and I would get 76%. Go back next week, rub it. 76%. Third week, rubbed it, 76%. I still remember it. Three weeks in a row. Fourth week, go out to rub the New Testament. Some other guys come out of the class with me and they see what I'm doing. They see I've got the New Testament. One of them makes a mocking comment. You still don't have that, do you? Uh, no. And I was all embarrassed. 55%. <laughs> Don't tell me it doesn't work. That was my religious experience growing up. When I was 17, my last year at high school, and the second last year at high school, I turned 17, about August. And about from that period on to the end of that year, uh, life slowly unraveled for me. Uh, my grandfather would die in November. He had cancer and was in the latter stages of his life, and I just adored him. I nearly failed year 11 high school. In those days, if you didn't pass, you didn't go on to do your year 12. I think I got 51% or something. See what happens when you don't rub the New Testament? <laughs> and I used to play AFL football, and that was really my religion. I was devoted to it. I used to play three games a week and train about five days a week. I was the fittest I'd ever been in my life. I was passionate about Australian rules football. And my life ambition was to go play it and then to go coach it. That's what I was going to do. And then but in, foot, in that year, from that second half of the year, this, I had a terrible season and to the point where I got dropped from top grade down and it was a blow. And I started asking all the big questions of life. Is there a God and is there life after death and how do you know? And Is the Bible true? And, and those questions I think I was asking primarily because of my grandfather. And what happens next? Is this it? 
You get to 60, 70 years of age, you die in darkness, that's it. Well, why bother? So I was suicidal. I even tried several times. I got a, we only had a family ute and I used to get in the ute and I used to drive it out on the back roads of Narandra and I used to get it up to about 65, 70 miles an hour, miles an hour. And but by that stage, the ute wasn't the best ute in the world. It would start to rattle and shake and stuff and I'd get scared and back off. What I was going to do was drive it into a tree or a telegraph pole, 17 years of age. One day I'm walking out of, um, at lunchtime, walking home. My grandfather has passed away. I'm depressed. Uh, life is meaningless. And I walk out the, the gate with a tall, lanky guy who's in my year, whom I know, whom everybody picks on. He's a geek. He's a science major, um, but he was a Christian. And I said to him, his name was Malcolm. I said to Malcolm, what's a Christian? I didn't know a thing. So he told me. Then he introduced me to my science teacher because he was a Christian. I didn't know. And Barry, my science teacher, said to me, get a New Testament, I have one of those, and read the Gospel of John. Okay? He said, I want you to read it. I want you to underline anything you don't believe or you don't understand or that you think is, you know, can't be done, like water turning into wine. If you don't believe it or you struggle with it, come back and talk to me and I'll explain it to you. I'll give you an explanation and so on. So I did that. Three or four weeks. I was read through the Gospel of John. And I'd go to Barry every, at lunchtime once a week and I would fire questions at him. Sometimes I even skipped double periods of history, the next lesson, because I was too engaged in learning about spiritual truth. And he let me. He kind of figured this is far more important than whatever was next. January that year, I became a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I was primarily becoming a follower of Jesus by reading the Gospel of John and a Navigator's Tract. And then, in the providence of God, on a Saturday in February, knock at the front door, two Jehovah's Witnesses. And then every Saturday for the rest of that year till about November, there would be very few Saturdays that we didn't meet. On Saturday, these two Jehovah's Witnesses, one guy would come all the time and the other guys would there'd always be somebody different. His name was Peter. He was a lovely guy. And we would talk about the Gospel of John and about Jesus and is his God and how do you know his God and did he rise from the dead and did all of this out. And he would convince me that what I had believed was wrong. I was almost a Jehovah's Witness on Saturday. On Sunday, I went to church where I would talk. And some of you might know Merv Olson, but Merv was in Narendra those days. He's now a Baptist pastor up here. And he would straighten me out. So every week there was this stretching and pulling to, of me focusing on exactly who is Jesus, because I want the truth. And so that's part of my life story. So 17, 18, become a Christian. Next couple of years, I have a very strong belief. It's, it's driven deep into me that Jesus is God and Jesus is God the Son and he is transcendent and he is Lord of all. He is perfect. And I had that very clearly, strongly etched in my brain. And many of you, if not all of you, will do the same. Ten years later, I'm at Theological College training to be a Baptist pastor in Sydney. And my Theological College... They endorse that. Jesus is God, Lord of all. But Jesus Christ is not only fully God, he is also fully man. And that stretched my thinking. 
that Jesus was not just fully God, above and aloof and distant from us, but he is fully man, identifying with and like us, tempted in every point, just as we are. And so when I then started reading the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, I got this other view of Jesus. My theological lecturer explained to me quite simply, and I've never forgotten it, you can either start with a view of Jesus from above, that he is divine, he is Lord, he is God, and, and descend to coming, he is man. You can acknowledge that, but your view is really that. Or, he said, you can have a belief of Jesus from below, of his humanity, that he is fully identified with us and he is a human in its fullest sense and then ascend to being, but this human is not just human, he is also God. It's almost impossible to hold both in our brains at the same time. We can say both, but we have a focus this way or a focus this way. Does that make sense? So in this series, we're going to take pretty much a focus down this way, emphasising the humanity, the person of Jesus, that if we were here in the first century, what would we have seen, what would we have experienced? And then appreciating the fact that the God who emptied himself and became human did so to identify with us in order to redeem us so that he could then take us to be with him forever. It's an incredible story and sometimes difficult things to grasp. That's where the Bible takes us. When I got up this morning, I went and checked my phone, turned on my iPad and the date flashes on it. 17th of November, 2013. 2013 from what? From him. This person divides history. BC, AD. And they even change it now in academic circles. It's no longer BC and AD. It's, um, what is it? BCE and CE. Before the Common Era and the Common Era. Well, that's okay. Doesn't matter. I mean, before Christ... And AD Anno Domini are clearly references to him. But now it's before the Common Era and the years of the Common Era. So this is 2013 of the Common Era. 2013 from what? Him again. He's still the one who divides history. He's still the one who impacts our lives. And sometimes quite subtly. Richard Nixon, one time President of the United States, got carried away in 1969 you, like me, may have seen this, when the Apollo astronauts first landed on the moon. He declared with excitement that this was the greatest day since creation. Until hmm. Billy Graham reminded him of Christmas and Easter. Billy Graham is right. The greatest event in human history revolves around the person of Jesus. He has changed this world more than any other person. And now a third of the people on the planet, two billion people, give him their allegiance. And others who don't give him their allegiance will use his name as a swear word. Jesus seems to have positioned himself when he was here with exactly that intent. He says, I tell you that whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge them before the angels of God. So according to Jesus, what we think about him and how we respond to him will determine our eternal destiny. He is important. And we're going to discover why he is so important. 
Crocodile Dundee, Crocodile Dundee had the impression that he and Jesus would be mates. During the wars of the French Revo uh, of religion, the French and the English used to shout to each other, the Pope may be French, but Jesus Christ is English. <laughs> and we all said, <laughs> actually, he's Jewish. He's not white. He's brown. He's probably not tall. He had long hair. And a beard and a moustache. We don't know what colour eyes, but probably not blue. We have no physical description of Jesus. We have no sculptures of him. Um, so we don't know anything about his height, his build, his hair colour eye colour, don't have any of those details yet. He is the most drawn, illustrated, painted person in human history. There are thousands of pictures of Jesus. And when you see it, you go, that's Jesus. But we don't know what he looked like. Jesus has been on the cover of Time magazine more times in the first 10 years of this century than anybody else besides the current serving American presidents. 21 times. Nobody else comes close. I've got a list. Let me give it to you. You can look this up on googletime.com. Do cover search. Mother Teresa, once. Abraham Lincoln, once. John Wayne, the Duke, twice. Harry Potter, twice. Nelson Mandela, four times. Tom Cruise, three times. Albert Einstein, four times. Martin Luther King, five times. Bill Gates, eight times. Princess Diana, eight times. Jesus Christ, 21 times. Not counting other times that they have covered some story about Christianity. How does this come to be? That this person, Jesus, a man, born in the backwaters of the first century Roman Empire. He's in the backwaters of Israel on the very edge of the... Roman Empire. He's a nobody in a nothing land and now he is the hope of the world. Remarkable. And many people come to having studied him. H.G. Wells once wrote a book, I think it's like on a short history of the world or something, it goes for about 1,200 pages. He's an atheist, he's an evolutionist, he's not a Christian, he's not a follower, not a believer in Jesus. When he had finished writing his tome, his 1,200 pages, he discovered at the end of it he had written 41 pages about Jesus compared to two pages about Plato, his hero. Jesus just occupies that much influence. There are many people who come close to saying correct things about Jesus but they get close but not far enough and we can do that. We can say Jesus is the son of God. We can say Jesus is the son of man but until we say he is my Lord and my saviour, we're not close enough. We have to personalise it. Napoleon said, I know men and Jesus Christ is no mere man. True. But that was it. Close, but not all the way. Pilate said, he is a man without fault. Correct, so close, but not far enough. Strauss said, he's the highest model of religion. And on and on and on they could go. Larry King, I think, even makes a comment, who is that TV interviewer, you may know him. Uh, March 2006, he was interviewing Tim LaHaye, the author of that Left Behind series of books, and he says to Tim LaHaye in a, uh, a session between takes, 
He says, I am not a believer, but I have the utmost respect for Jesus Christ. I believe he was the most influential person who ever lived. Yes, that's true. Close, but not close enough. So I'd like us through this series to be giving you information so that you can be having gospel conversations with your loved ones, your families, your colleagues. Take some of these interesting stats or whatever and share it with people. Did you know Jesus has been on Time magazine 21 times first 10 years? And I'll say, no, didn't know that. And they'll be so impressed with you. You see, when you contrast this too, for us in our world, when people, the significant people, when the great ones of history die and rattle them off, their reputations were immense, and then after their death, their influence wanes. With Jesus, it's the reverse. On the day he died, it's almost like that tiny movement that he had started was going to disappear. You read Luke 24. You talk about the two guys on the Emmaus Road. We had hoped that he was the one who was the Messiah who would change the world, but now he's gone, and we have no hope. And yet, his death, rather than... Uh, leading to the waning of his influence, actually seemed to launch his influence and transformed the world. As somebody has written, if there was a, uh, an award for the most likely to succeed, the Lord Jesus would be last on the list. He was not likely to succeed. And yet our calendars are divided by him. Mental health patients who have grandiose identification disorders, identity disorders, tend to go for Jesus or God reminds me um, excuse me for time um, the doctor was talking to one inmate uh, inpatient in the mental hospital and he said that he was Napoleon the doctor said who told you you were Napoleon he said God did the guy in the table in the bed next door said no I didn't John Ordberg writes this very beautifully. No one knows what Jesus looked like, I said that. Um, but it's in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, that grateful people worship, and that angry people swear. From child dedication, baby dedications, to weddings, to hospital rooms, to funerals. It's in Jesus' name that many people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. John Ordberg. We live in the aftermath of his life and his influence. And we should be asking the question that he's asking, who do you say I am? We treat children differently in our world now because of Jesus. In his lifetime, when he was here, children were nothing. They were disregarded. In fact, children for the first eight days to 12 days of their life weren't even named. Why? Because it had to be decided whether they would live or not. There was a terrible thing in the Roman Empire called exposure where the father had the authority and the right where he would take the child and if he liked the child, he could keep it, take it in his arms and he would name it. But if he didn't, if it was the wrong gender, in other words, if it was a girl, they would take it and they would leave it on the streets, on the dung heaps, for the animals or for the child to die. They were simply rejected if they were disabled, deformed in some capacity, exposure. And it was Jesus who drew attention to children. So it's in that context, with that attitude of what's going on in society, 
that when the parents are bringing their babies to Jesus and the disciples are trying to stop them and he gets cranky and he says, don't stop them. You bring the kids to me. Let the children come to me. And it's that statement which a generation later influenced his followers to start going around and picking up these children and these babes who had been thrown out and exposed and they started orphanages. That's how it started, under the influence of Jesus. And we treat children differently in our world since then. We treat women differently in our world because of Jesus. That's a whole talk in itself. But women, children, slaves were non-entities in the world in which Jesus grew up. And you read the Gospels and you'll read Jesus having women with him. You'll have women sitting at his feet listening to him. He is giving them dignity. Because when Jesus looked at people, he didn't see status, kings and rulers and business people, and then down to craftsmen and then down to slaves and women and children. When he looked at people, he didn't see status. He saw people made in the image of God and treated everyone accordingly. It's because of the way that he treated lepers and disabled folk that ministry started later on, generations later, where churches are becoming established and it's them who is going out amongst the poor because of Jesus. He never wrote a book, but in his name there has been more learning, more education, more libraries and more books written because of his influence. They did a study, you can read the book in John Dickinson's book on called Humilitas. Some secular um, scholars got together, Harvard University or Yale or whatever, and they wanted to discover how come the word humility has changed usage. Because pre-Jesus, humility was a weakness. It was to be disdained. But now in our culture, even today and for centuries, it's been elevated. We don't like anybody who brags and boasts and there are IM merchants. We automatically don't like that. We like humility. Or well, where did the change come? Their question is. And they traced it. Comes the influence of one person, Jesus, who said, Come unto me, all who are struggling, heavy, heavy hearted and burdened, and I'll give you peace. For I am humble and gentle in heart. He elevated the value, the influence of Jesus, forgiveness. Same, comes from him. Even in death, his influence is hard to escape. You go to the headstones in cemeteries these days and you'll see calendars. You'll have a date of birth, a dash and the date of death. Again, his influence. Or for my great-grandparents where they couldn't afford to put a tombstone, they put a cross. And the cross is still there to this day. His influence. Death did not end the influence of the Lord Jesus. It seemed to have launched it. And as I said, two billion people today believe the story of Jesus. They have looked at him like I looked at him. And they came to understand, not fully, but they got a glimpse of who he is. Lord, and the one who is like us, who died in our place, who identified with us and took our sin, our punishment, so that we could be reconciled to God. People not only believe it, they rely on it for their eternal destiny. They don't just think it's true, they are trusting it is so. That's what I say to people. When I die, will I go to heaven? Yes. How do you know? Not because I'm going to be good enough, because that's not the deal. I know I'm going to go to heaven because somebody whom I trust 100% said so. And if I'm not in heaven, then he is unfaithful. That's the implication. 
and he is completely trustworthy, he is fully faithful. Therefore, I can say, when I die, I will go to heaven. Why? Because of Jesus. Let me read you this one poem that you may be familiar with called One Solitary Life. Of the, thir- of the estimated 13 billion people who have ever lived on our planet, why does the one name, Jesus Christ, draw so much attention? More by far than anybody else. I'm not sure of the author of this poem. I've looked it up on the internet and there are about three different authors. So I'm not sure who the original author is, but here is the poem. And I'll close with this. One solitary life. He was born in an obscure village, a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never travelled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. And he was only 30. Uh, 33. uh, When he was only 33, his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race. He is the leader of mankind's progress and all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, and all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you might be pleased to open our hearts to reveal more of yourself to us as we take this journey through this series. Lord, help the truth to get out of our heads and into our hearts and from out of our hearts into our fingertips that we might just not know the truth, speak the truth, but that we might be impacted by the truth, transformed, changed, to be different because we follow you. We acknowledge that you are Lord and we acknowledge that you are Saviour, our Lord and our Saviour. And our only desire is for you to be pleased and glorified. We ask that you would do that in each of our lives and in our church. Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.